Hello, everybody. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to episode number 177 in our Bible studies together. Today, we are opening up uh, Dr. Luke chapter 11. Now, here, uh, well, here's something interesting. Uh, a little tidbit of information. We know that God the Father on Mount Sinai inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, not once, but twice. Now, here in the uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 11, uh, Dr. Luke begins by sharing uh, a version of the Lord's Prayer. The version of the Lord's Prayer that we're most familiar with comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And now that we're mentioning that, if you go to uh, goodfriar.com, I added a link on the bottom with the Lord's Prayer. And when you click that, it'll come up for you in uh, as a website. But also, I, I created a, a PDF file that you can download and print for yourself, and you can share that with as many people as you like. Uh, I, I use the Lord's Prayer often. Uh, I change the words slightly, and we'll get to that when we get to Matthew. But here in, in uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 11, uh, this version of the Lord's Prayer is often uh, referred to as the Disciples' Prayer because there are some subtle differences. But let's go ahead and dig into it here. Uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and don't let us yield to temptation. Now, uh, first thing to note is that we don't know which disciple uh Dr. Luke is referring to here. We just know that one of his disciples uh, requested this. Now, the disciples uh, knew that prayer uh, was, an, was, was an essential part in the life of Christ as he was incarnated as the Son of Man. They often saw him uh, go off on his own to pray and commune with the Father. And so here the disciple said, uh, teach us to pray. He didn't say, teach us how to pray. He said, teach us to pray. Okay, so an examination of the Lord's Prayer, um, if we were to dig into it theologically, uh, as many have done, we could become lost in a mire of, of self-indulgence, really. What we should think about 
when we think about how Christ uh, taught us to pray is the basic things that he said we should ask the Father for, are the basic things that we should praise the Father for. Now, uh, Christ begins here in this verse, Father, may your name be kept holy. Well, what we should think about here is that Jesus said we should address God as our Father. Well, why? Why is God our Father? You see, once you become born again, once you repent of your sins truthfully and honestly and begin to change your life with the goal being to live in a manner that Christ wants us to, live in a manner that the Father wants us to, and once you accept Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your personal Savior, what happens here, as we've discussed before, is you're given a gift of the Holy Spirit in your soul, okay? And additionally, you have been accepted back into God's family. So at that point, God becomes our Heavenly Father. We are now in God's family. This, this intimacy, this, this type of relationship sounds familiar to us, but at the time, uh, at that time in the nation of Israel, this familial relationship was unknown to the nation of Israel. So what Jesus is saying here is we should speak to God as our loving Father, okay? Just as if you are a parent, you would love your children, okay? Now, God the Father loves us in a manner that we just simply can't conceive. As I've mentioned before, that type of love is, is called agape love, okay? So, quite simply, all Jesus is saying here is talk to God as your Father, because He is, once you've been born again. Next, He says, may your kingdom come, okay? Now, that is simply saying that we, as children of the Father, pray to the Father for the time that Christ will return and reign supreme over earth, where once Christ comes again in, in the second coming, he will reign on earth for a thousand years. And while Christ, while Christ is reigning over earth for that thousand years, at that time, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? Now, verse 3. Give us each day the food we need. Okay? Different translations here will say, uh, give us the, the food we need for the day, 
or give us each day our food for tomorrow, something like that. Well, what this is, is saying here is not only the physical food we need to maintain our biological bodies, but the spiritual food we need to bring us closer to God. Okay? Now, as a matter of fact, when I just, before I began today's podcast, I made a, made a, a couple of sandwiches. My favorite thing, well, not favorite, but uh, I, I like Dave's bread, if you've ever had that. Uh, uh, you know, and I make very simple, humble, not very fancy sandwiches to, to feed myself. And when I was making making the sandwich, I said, thank you, Heavenly Father, for my daily bread. And, and that's how I, 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 pr- I prayed over, over that meal. It wasn't this big fancy thing where you stand up for, for an hour praying in front of other people to pray so that other people can see how you pray and you can get that, that self-validation from other humans. God knows your heart. God knows what you need. God knows your thoughts and your desires. So all I did when I prayed for my my meal uh, an hour ago was, thank you, Father, for my daily bread. And, and, and that's all we need to do. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, this part confuses a lot of people. Everybody says, we don't have to pray for forgiveness of sins. That's, that's horse hockey. Okay, that, that shows a lack of spiritual understanding of God's truth. Now, uh, when Christ uh, became our propitiation, when he allowed himself to be tortured, when he allowed himself to be crucified, when he died and was buried and was resurrected. Okay. What that is, is he paid the penalty for our sins. Okay. By being our propitiation, by allowing his blood to wash us clean, the penalty for our sin has been paid. That allows us back into the family of God. Now, we also, once we have been born again, continue to sin. It is the nature of the stained physical bodies that we live in. So, the sins that we commit in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, and with our souls— those sins that we commit on a daily basis, we are to ask forgiveness for, okay? What this is called is, uh, if you wanted to throw a theological term on it, you could say something to the effect of parental forgiveness or governmental forgiveness, depending upon which religious slant that you prefer. Okay, it's like a child doing something wrong, and the child says, I'm sorry, mommy, or I'm sorry, daddy. Okay, when we are forgiven our sins, God looks upon us as children again, because that's what we are. Okay, 
And so when we commit our daily sins, we are to ask God for forgiveness from those sins. And when others sin against us or do us wrong or betray us, we are to forgive them. Now, here's an important part. If God looks upon you in your daily life and finds a hardened heart or a partially hardened heart or an unforgiving spirit in our hearts, what will he do? He will chastise us, okay? He will chastise us again and again. In other words, allow us pain, allow us tests, okay? God himself doesn't tempt us, but God allows us to be punished, okay? He does allow us to experience trials and tests in life. Those trials and tests are designed for our maturation. They're designed to allow us to grow spiritually, okay? And God will look at us and say, well, how forgiving are their hearts? I gave you some examples in previous studies of where I myself have been betrayed horribly, horribly. And I'm not going to elaborate on it other than to say that the pain that it caused my heart uh, was so grave that it, it, it hardened my heart from feeling to a certain degree. Uh, for a long period in my life, I was unable to cry, as an example. I am now again able to do so, thankfully. My God has, has scraped away the, the hardness of my heart to where the other day I saw a young man on uh, America's Got Talent. I forget his name, uh, but he was a saxophone player. And if you're listening to this uh, a few days after a recording, I... I, I and you like music, uh, Google America's Got Talent saxophone player. I can't remember the young man's name, but when he played his saxophone, he didn't just play it. He sung the music. And it, it so touched my heart that I literally sat in my chair and cried. It was just beautiful. Now, what God looks at is how forgiving are we to those that betray us. And he will use that as a gauge to determine how far we have developed along his path of righteousness. Okay? If we haven't gone far enough, if we haven't developed enough, that's where these trials and tribulations come into play. They're tests to see if we can grow. Okay. Now this last part here, and don't let us yield to temptation. Now, once again, um, here, God doesn't tempt us. Okay. 
but God allows us to be tempted, okay? God wants us to refrain from falling into sin, and we should ask God to protect us, and that's what this is. Don't let us yield to temptation. We should pray that uh, if we have a desire to sin, we should pray that the opportunity for us to fulfill that desire doesn't coincide with the appearance or the temptation of that desire. Okay? If we have weaknesses, pray that the temptation to yield to that weakness doesn't coincide with the opportunity for that yielding to occur. Now, in verse 5, Dr. Luke continues, and Christ continues here. He says in verse 5, Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Your fathers, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, now on these parables about prayer that Christ just taught us. Um, first, what Christ is doing here is giving us an illustration of God's willingness to listen to and to answer the prayers of his children. But these are often taken far astride or away from the context in which they were taught. For an example, uh, in... 
verse 13, here it is. Uh, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, uh, the significance here is that Christ selected what as the gift that we most need and the gift that the Father desires the most to give. That is obviously the Holy Spirit. We should pray for the Holy Spirit. Now, we shouldn't pray that the Holy Spirit be given to us as an indwelling person, okay, but that he should fill us completely with the Holy Spirit. Now, why should we not pray that the Holy Spirit is given to us as an indwelling person because when we were converted, when we were born again, it was at that time that the Holy Spirit was granted to us. Okay, that's the thing I've uh, I've taught you again and again. Uh, now would be a good time to give some scriptural references for that. Um, the first one would be Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning around verse 13. Uh, here we go. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So here, the Apostle Paul is teaching us again that once we were converted, once we were born again, Christ gave us our deposit, that Holy Spirit, and that's why I consistently teach that you must grow the Holy Spirit within you by feeding yourself the Word on a daily basis. That is your daily bread, okay? Daily, you commune with the Word. You commune with the Spirit. You commune with the Father to grow that Holy Spirit within you. A second example is... Uh, well, Romans is a good one. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, beginning around verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, if your conversion was real. In other words, are you a pretender? in the faith. God knows, and you should know too. And he continues, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness. 
and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Okay? So, here Christ is emphasizing the importance of the Spirit. And we should ask for the Spirit in times of trial and tribulation to fill us, to heal us, to calm us, to guide us. Now, earlier Christ taught that a human father would not give bad gifts, right? Even though we as human beings have that sinful nature. Therefore, if we ask for things in prayer, if we petition the Father for things in prayer, would the Father give us a bad gift? Now, people always say, well, I've prayed for something and I didn't get it. God is not a vending machine, okay? God knows what is best for us. If we pray for something and he says no, well, then he knows that our request would not be what is best for us. A denial from God a denial of prayer from God is always better than our petitions to God. Okay? God knows what's best for us. Now, there are pastors out there that use this little parable in Scripture to teach that Christ wants to rain down gold bullion on us, and that's just not true. Christ wants us to walk a path of righteousness. What we ask for should be in line with our true conversion and our true pursuit in living the life that the Father wants us to lead. Our petition should not be for things that fulfill the sinful natures of our sinful bodies of flesh. They should be for things that aid us on our quest, on our walk to achieve a life of righteousness in the eyes of the Father. Verse 14. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak, and when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Now here, um, uh, that should probably be translated... Beelzebub or Beelzebul, uh, because Beelzebub is the prince, name of the prince of demons. Uh, verse 16, others 
trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. <laughs> now, watch what Jesus does here. This is, this is good. Verse 17, he knew their thoughts, so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say, I am empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, any kingdom uh, divided against itself is destroyed. That's, uh, well, that's, that's been true throughout history. As a matter of fact, right now in uh, the United States, we are divided against ourselves and will likely fall. But what is Christ teaching here? Well, they said that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub or the power of Satan. Now, Christ said, well, if he is casting out demons by the power of Satan, who are your exorcists casting out demons? Or whereby what power are your exorcists casting out demons? In other words, if they believe he is casting out demons by the power of Satan, well, that means their exorcists are doing so too. In other words, they are condemning themselves. Now, here, where Christ says, when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him. Well, who in this scenario is stronger? Obviously, Christ, because he is overpowering Satan by casting out his demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Verse 23, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that its former home 
is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there, and so that person is worse off than before. Okay? What's going on here? Christ is showing that their nation has been cured of demon possession. Okay? How did this happen? Well, let's go back to verse 22. Here, until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Here, the Lord was stronger than Satan. The Lord came upon Satan, overcame him, took all of his armor from him, and divided his spoils. Okay? In other words, his critics couldn't deny that those evil spirits were being cast out by Jesus. This could only mean that Satan had been conquered and his victims had been liberated. Now, in verse 24, he says again, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. When it finds none, it says, I will return. Okay? What's happening here is Christ is predicting that someday soon, an unclean spirit would gather more spirits. They would enter the house and dwell there. What is this referring to? This is referring to the nation of Israel returning to a form of idolatry. This will happen during the tribulation, where they will acknowledge that Antichrist is God. A good reference for that is, uh, well, let's just go with John there. John chapter 5, uh, 43. I, this is Jesus speaking, have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. That's referring to when the Antichrist comes during the tribulation, he will come in his own name. Okay? Verse 27. As he was speaking... A woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came, and the breasts that nursed, that nursed you. Jesus replied, But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Now this is, is fairly simple. Christ doesn't deny that Mary was blessed. She was blessed to have the privilege of bearing Christ. Okay? 
But what Christ is saying is that there's something more important, far more important. It's more important to hear the Word of God, take it into your heart, believe it, keep it, and put it into practice. In other words, Mary, the mother of the physical incarnation of Christ, she was more blessed because she believed Christ. She was more blessed because she followed Christ. No natural relationship is more important than the spiritual relationship. Okay? Mary is not to be an object of adoration as the Catholic Church practices. That is just absolutely wrong. And this is just another example in Scripture where Christ lets you know clearly what was blessed about Mary was not that her womb, uh, what's the word for bringing a fetus to, to uh, not fertile, incubated, the physical body of Christ incarnate. What was truly blessed about Mary is she believed in God. She believed that Christ was the Messiah. That's why Mary is blessed. Okay. Verse 29. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said, This evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. This passage um, references that Jewish generation that was alive at that time. Uh, they had the privilege of seeing the miracles that Christ performed, uh, the healings, the teaching, uh, the raising of, of children from the dead. And these people just never seemed to be satisfied. And, you know, Christ is making it very clear here that this evil generation, primarily referring to the, to the Jews at that time, wanted another sign. And here he makes it very clear that there will be only one final sign. And that final sign would be Christ's propitiation on the cross when he allows himself to be tortured and then crucified and then dies and, and, and is buried and is raised again. Well, this refers to the sign of Jonah. Jonah is often improperly taught. Uh, Jonah was dead in the belly of the fish. It wasn't a whale. 
it was a fish, okay, especially if you translate it from the Koine Greek. Well, after three days, Jonah was in the belly of the fish. The fish spat out Jonah on the shore, okay? We'll get into the story of Jonah again when we go through some of the Old Testament, but Jonah didn't want to follow the will of God. God made it clear that he will, okay? And so God brought Jonah, or resurrected Jonah, back to life so he could go preach to the Ninevites as God originally instructed him. Now, Jonah, as, as I've taught you before, was, was not fond of the Ninevites. They had a, a, a clashing of cultures. They despised each other. So Jonah didn't want to rescue them. Well, here Christ is saying Jonah was resurrected so that he could preach to the Ninevites. That was the sign that the Ninevites had that Jonah was from God. Well, here Christ is saying this evil generation will have no other sign than the final sign of my resurrection. Okay? Crystal clear. Verse 31. The queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now, someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Now, here, the Queen of Sheba is often translated as the Queen of the South. And that was a glorious story from the time of Solomon. I love reading about Solomon and how he asked... Uh, God for wisdom, and that's actually translated better, probably, as organizational skills. Uh, but anyway, we could get into theological debates about that later. But um, what Christ is saying here is, is uh, the Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba, traveled many, many miles, long journey, just so she could hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Christ is saying he is much greater than Solomon, which he is, much wiser than Solomon. But, but they won't listen to his teachings. Okay? The Queen of Sheba listened to Solomon, but that generation of Jews at the time that Christ was teaching had the benefits of his wisdom and they refused to listen. So Christ is saying, the people of Nineveh who did repent, okay, who did listen to Jonah's teaching, will be there on judgment day and condemn them, okay, because the people of Nineveh repented of their sins by listening to the preaching of Jonah. But this generation had the privilege, the honor, 
of listening to the preaching of Jesus Christ, and they refuse to repent. You see, there's so many times that I've talked to people about Christ, and they keep saying again and again and again, well, give us a sign. Go heal this person. Have God rain a cross in the sky or blah, 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 blah. That is, that is, that is, that is very displeasing to God. Okay. Faith is not based upon sight of the physical eyes because the physical eyes reside in a stained body of flesh. Faith is seen through the eyes of the soul. Unbelief will say, let me see, and then I will believe. No, no. What you see with your physical eyes is not pure. What you see through the eyes of your soul is pure if you have been saved. God says, believe, and then you will see. And that's absolutely true. Because when you're born again, the eyes of the Holy Spirit are awakened within you to see the truth of the word. Verse 33, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Now, this little parable here of the lighted lamp, um, uh, some people think there, there's no connection between this verse and, and what Christ was just teaching. And there's actually a very, very vital link here. The light that Christ is talking about is what? God is the one who lit the lamp and placed it on a stand. Who or what is that lamp? That lamp is the person of Jesus Christ, the light, the life, the light, the word. Okay? Now, in verse 34, Christ says, Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your body is filled with light, but when it is unhealthy, your body is filled 
with darkness. What's going on here? In this physical realm that we're currently living in, you see, our eternal lives are in the spiritual realm. In this physical realm, the eyes are what gives light to the body. If your eyes are in a body that is filled with unpure motives, what happens? If, if, if people are unbelievers and they, they cling to greed, if they cling to selfishness, the light that is let through is not pure and they are blinded to the glory and the true value of the Savior. You see, in 35, Christ said, make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. What is he doing here? He is addressing the men of that generation the spiritual leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, all those men thought themselves to be very wise. Yet in this wisdom that they themselves felt that they possessed, they could not see the true light because of the stains of sin on their physical bodies. They could not see that the light that was in them was actually the darkness that Jesus was talking about. This very sin is staining a vast majority of the religious leaders today, where they are not teaching the truth of the word, the truth of salvation, the truth of hell. Okay? Let the true light of Christ shine in you by truly and humbly asking for forgiveness and praying desperately for the Holy Spirit to aid you, to guide you, to lead you on that path towards salvation. And the road to salvation is paved with the bricks of the Word. You must read the word, open his truth, allow that truth in you. Each chapter that you read is another brick on the road to salvation. Verse 37, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited them home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. Well, here I should say where it says table. They actually didn't have tables back then. They reclined 
uh, on the floor, uh, you know, bent their legs while sitting on the floor with their feet behind him. That's how the lady washed uh, the feet of Christ uh, with her tears in her hair. Uh, verse 38, his host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Now, you can see here that, that uh, uh, Christ could read their hearts. And what does Christ do when he reads the hearts and sees the impurities, especially when dealing with um, the quote-unquote religious elite? Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. Now, here, uh, Christ goes on for a while, but but here uh, some people say, well, isn't it rude to be invited to a dinner party and then, you know, chastise your hosts and so forth? Well, it's better to be rude at a dinner party than, than, to, grip, than to break faith with God. That's why if you're a believer today and you're at a dinner party or with other people and you see people uh, <laughs> blatantly sitting or stating something that is against the will of God. Uh, your job isn't to keep your mouth shut. Your job is to speak up and stand up for Christ. Uh, you will be unliked. Uh, I can confirm that with my life, how I've been frowned upon by by speaking the truth of Christ, and uh, people dislike it. Well, of course they do. We're living in a world that is literally governed by Satan. Remember, I've taught you before. Uh, remember the three temptations of Christ. In uh, one of them, uh, Satan offered to give Christ all the kingdoms of this world. Uh, multiple times in the scripture, in the epistles, it says Satan is the king of this world, or Satan of the, is the god of this world. It's true, and it is evident in the massive falling away that our culture's morality has endured. And we must not be afraid to speak up, just as Christ did here. Okay? Christ could read the wickedness of their hearts. Verse 42, What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, what's going on here is the, the Pharisees of the day, uh, uh, they would grow uh, many of their own herbs. 
And what they would do is, is be careful to tithe exactly the right amount of leaves from their gardens. They would be careful to tithe exactly what they should tithe. But what did they miss? As Christ says, the more important things. What does this mean? This means that the Pharisees were, uh, what's a word for that? Externalists. In other words, they were careful that what they did in the view of others are what others could see. They made sure that what others could see showed them as being pious and righteous. In other words, they only did correct things in the view of others, but they missed the most important things, like caring for the poor. That's as I've said before. We have all these churches in, in our country today, some large, some small. If every one of the churches housed all the homeless people that we have in our country today, there would be a vast amount of leftover room. Okay? That is the job of the churches, to care for the poor, to care for the widows and orphans, to care for those that are unable to care for themselves due to whatever means. Yet today we have churches that hold thousands of people with multiple services. Yet once those huge services are over, what happens? The churches sit empty until the next service. Okay? That is an outward exemplification of an internal corrupt condition. They are not doing their jobs. Verse 43. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. I love it when Christ goes on a rant. Well, what's he saying here? The same thing. The Pharisees are full of sinful pride. They want to have the seats of honor. They want people to bow to them as they walk into the marketplaces. That is desiring self-validation from man when you should be seeking honor for God. Okay? Verse 45. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Verse 46. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow awaits you experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you, 
for you build monuments for the prophets your ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. Now, what we're talking about here, uh, Christ talks uh, starts in uh, verse 46, talking about uh, what sorrow awaits you experts in religious law. Uh, I like to call this the sins of the lawyers are the sins of the experts in religious law. What happened um, post-Moses up until the time of Christ is that the religious leaders would continue to add law after law after law that the nation of Israel would have to follow, laws that were not handed down by God to Moses, but laws that these self-important people who were the leaders of the faith, decided that they needed to implement upon the people. It became so burdensome that it was impossible for the nation of Israel to follow all the laws. They believed that by following the laws, by doing the works of God, that was their way to their salvation. Okay? And these experts in religious law, or the lawyers, uh, would also erect huge monuments over the tombs of the prophets that they themselves killed. Okay, as a matter of fact, at the very time that they were having this argument with Christ, they were building uh, monuments on the tombs for the prophets, but right in front of them was the one true prophet, Jesus Christ himself. Okay. So Christ was simply pointing out their own hypocrisy. You see, these, these lawyers, these experts in religious law, they, they, they despised the very people that they gained their self-importance from. Okay? They had contempt for their own people, but it was from those people that they derived their self-importance, okay? Verse 50. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you experts in religious law? For you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, what is Christ doing here? Um, in verse 
50 and 51, where Christ is talking about the murder of God's prophets uh, from the creation of the world, from Abel to Zechariah. What that is, is the first recorded case, the murder of Abel in the Old Testament to Zechariah, which is the last recorded case of the murder of a prophet in the Old Testament. So from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, Christ ran the gamut, uh, the entire gamut of martyrs and saying that this generation, because of their sins, would be responsible for it. Now, everybody surely is is familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Zechariah, you might not be familiar with. That's in um, that's in Second Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles chapter yeah chapter twenty four, starting around verse twenty one. I'll go ahead and read that for you, so you're familiar. This is the last martyr in the Old Testament murder of Zechariah. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but killed his son, who said, As he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. At the turn of the year, the army of Aram marched against Joash and invaded Judah and Jerusalem and killed all the leaders of the people. They sent all the plunder to their king in Damascus. Although the Aramean army had come with only a few men, the Lord delivered into their hands a much larger army because Jerusalem had forsaken the Lord the god of their ancestors, judgment was executed on Joash. When the the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and they killed him in his bed. So he died and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Now, next, Christ said, What sorrow awaits you, uh, experts in religious law, for removing the key to knowledge from the people? Well, see, these people outwardly, they express their loyalty to the scriptures, their dedication to the scriptures. But if they were so dedicated to the scriptures and they knew what the prophets spoke, then they would know that Jesus Christ was the one that the scriptures referred to, the prophesied Messiah. Instead, They themselves are the ones, as we'll see in upcoming chapters, kept their Messiah the key to knowledge.
the key to the word, the word, the light, the life, and the light. They kept Jesus Christ from them by they themselves ordering Pontius Pilate to crucify him. And then, of course, the Pharisees tried to trap Christ, which, of course, they never could do or ever will do. And this ends chapter 11 in the Gospel of Luke. As always, feel free to reach out to me on goodfriar.com. Uh, remember that I, I uh, left you a printable copy of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when you go to goodfriar.com, at the bottom you'll see a link that says the Lord's Prayer. And when you click that, the prayer will come up. But you also have a, a copy that you can print out for yourself, hang it up on your wall, or hand it to friends, or give it away. Even give the PDF file away. It's all free. It's the Word of God. As always, I'll close with a blessing for you. Heavenly Father, please allow your loving grace, your loving touch, your healing touch, your spirit, your love flow through me to your children who are listening to your word today. I read to you and give you the blessing of Numbers 624-26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, God bless.